So today we are going to be ending our uh, sermon series called Jesus the Theologian. And uh, it's been a study through the book of Luke into Luke's original content. So stuff that we don't find anywhere else that Luke as a historian had found stories of Jesus that had been told that had been accepted by the church community, um, and but they had never been published. And so Luke... Luke writes them, and he writes them very specifically for very specific reasons. Today is going to become quite obvious um, why Luke wrote this one, and uh, and I hope that we that we learn a lot, and I hope that we uh, grow a lot in this discussion today because there's a lot to be offered. Um, Today, if you have any questions or you want to interact with the, with the text, you can use the tablet that's in front of you or use your phone, promisechurch.community, and uh, you can you could submit any questions or comments um, at that. And at the end, I'll take a few moments and, and we, will, we will go through that. Um, we have uh, today's text is asking us a very important question. Oftentimes in Jesus' time, there were people communicated in stories. And one of the questions that a person must ask when a story is told in Jesus' time is the question, who am I in the story? The point of narrative is to teach, and we learn because we see the answer to who am I and how that character responds in the story can help us reflect on who we are and how and what God is teaching us and help us shape our own lives. And that's why it's so powerful the way that Luke communicates so often through narrative. And it's why we're able to teach so much on it because we're, at, we're answering the question, who am I? Very important. And in, t- in today's reading, that's actually the point of the entire parable that Jesus tells today. So today I'm going to be reading the story of the Good Samaritan, and it is the proper story to read today. And, uh, and so it's, uh, it starts in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, And passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn 
and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you need, spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So one of Jesus' most famous stories, only, only found in Luke, and uh, it's an important story. It's very important for us to understand what Jesus is getting at and where Jesus is going with it. And it comes out of a problem. There's a, there's a problem in the story that's being presented, um, and, and it happens actually as Jesus answers a question that he gets asked a lot, which is, what is the greatest commandment? And so, Jesus' use of the commandments creates a sense of ambiguity. There's a sense of, I don't really know what you mean when you say that, Jesus, um, to the Jewish community he was talking to. The way, it, the way this happened is rabbis at Jesus' time in first century Jerusalem would be asked and judged on the answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? And there's a formulaic response. There is a way that every rabbi has to answer this question. The greatest commandment is the Shema, which is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. That is the greatest commandment. So every rabbi had to answer with that because to answer with anything else would be wrong. Like you just failed the test. You get the answer wrong. But the second one always gave an interpretive lens to the entire law. That was the way the rabbi was able to push what they believed God was revealing most clearly. So a rabbi would often be given the question, what is the most important commandment? And then they would often answer with Shema and then their lens, the way they want us to read the rest of the narratives. So that became very important. The way Jesus chose to answer it is love your neighbor as yourself, which is just a beautiful answer. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on this. I want to note that Mark was written before Luke, and, we, and there's a lot of suggestions that Matthew is also written before Luke. So Matthew and Mark both have this famous question in, what is the greatest commandment? Meaning, it's probable that every time Jesus walked into a new town, every time he dealt with the religious leaders, this was the leading question. The leading question was, what's the greatest commandment? So there was a constant rhetoric that was going on. Town to town, we see the same question being asked. Matthew and Mark record it in different ways ways than Luke does. So in Matthew 22, 34 to 40, um, it's right here. Matthew 22, 34 to 40 says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In Mark 12, 28 to 31, we get the same interaction, maybe in a different town, maybe at a different time, but the story is still told the same way. Um, chapter 12, 38. And in his teaching, sorry, 12.28, sorry, I jumped too far. 12.28, and one of the scribes came up to him, came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked, which is the, which is the most important commandment of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So we see that Jesus has answered the question numerous times, but here in Luke chapter 10, it's different. In Luke chapter 10, it's not Jesus quoting Shema first and then love your neighbor. It's the scribe who's saying, who's throwing Jesus' words back at him, saying, this is what you say. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what you say. So we see that there's a problem being set up. The teacher the, the, sorry, the lawyer is saying to Jesus, this is your answer to the question, and he's saying that there's a problem here. Here's the problem. The problem comes from an understanding of the law. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, is where this comes from. And you got to know that the people who are talking to Jesus are biblically literate, if I could use that term loosely. Um, they are, they know Torah inside and out. And so when Jesus says, love the Lord your God, and he says, love your neighbor, they go, that is right there. So they know exactly what he's saying. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall keep all my statutes. You shall not let your uh, cattle breed with a different kind. Whoops, I got the wrong one. Oh, I'm in Leviticus 19. <laughs> Look at this. Use your Bible correctly. This is important. Um, so Leviticus... Mm, do, 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 where to go? I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I'm lost. 19, 18. It says... Wrong reference. No. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. In 34, that's, that's the one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. But 34 says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt, for I am the Lord. Here's the clarification question that the, that the lawyer is looking for. 
the lawyer is saying, which is my neighbor? The Jewish people who are around me or the native who is not part of us or the, or the sojourner who is not part of us? Who is my neighbor? He's taking issue with the exact details that Jesus is saying. He's saying, oh, right, Jesus. Let me, uh, let me parse that out, chapter and verse. Let me, let me bring that down to exactly what did the law mean here when it said that I have to love my neighbor. What is it that we're talking about? So this is the problem that he's seeing. The people who studied the law clearly heard the statements. They wanted Jesus to clarify his answer about who's my neighbor. And it starts with, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's where we get the context of the story. The, the lawyer comes up. He knows all of this that I just talked about. And he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response says, what does the law say? And now the actual problem is presented. Where, where we have the response, Jesus' response, love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer goes, hmm, interesting, throws it back, and Jesus affirms it. Jesus says, yes, if you do this, you will have eternal life. If you love God with everything you have, you love your neighbor with everything you have, you have eternal life. This is what brings life. This is Torah. This is the fulfillment. This is, this is what it's supposed to be. You do this and this, and you will have life. And now we see our own human depravity. Right here is the first time in the story where we actually see the human problem. Because God has made it very clear. You do this, you do this, you'll have eternal life. It's pretty basic. And the next verse we call the retort. So Jesus' response was pretty basic. We call the retort. The lawyer looks back at Jesus and wanting to justify himself said, who is my neighbor? You know, as Christians, we actually do this all the time and we say, well, it all depends on how you read the text. You know, it all depends on what you think Jesus meant in his day when he said that. And wanting to justify ourselves, we go to Scripture and we use it in a way that we try to make ourselves look better. We try to put ourselves on equal plane with God as though we are the judge. We try to go, oh, but if I get this right and this right and this right, let me, let me just tone it down to the exact specific little thing. That's what that's supposed to talk about. And that's exactly what the religious people of the first century did. It's exactly what so many Christians do today where we try to get a, a good sense on what does the Bible actually say about smoking pot? Well, it says absolutely nothing, actually. But it's a conversation I've heard again and again and again since pot becomes legal in Canada. It's like this real thing that's happening where now Christians are going, well, let me just check what the Bible really says. It actually says nothing. It says nothing. And so, well, what does that mean? Well, it means love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means. 
means do that. But wanting to justify ourselves in front of God Almighty, who are we to do that? Wanting to justify ourselves and to position myself to such a way that, well, God, I did this right and I did that right, and therefore you ought to, you have to, you must let me in. Well, now we start to see human depravity. Now we start to see our problem. And so it's, for us, it's so often about, oh, I need to be right. I've got to get this scripture right, or I've got to get this argument right, this logical following right. I've got to make, get people convinced that I've, I've just, I know what I'm talking about. And Jesus is like, it's right there. There's the heart thing going on. There's the heart thing. You're trying to prove yourself to God, to somebody else, trying to gain rank. So wanting to justify himself, Jesus sees that, and so he's very gracious, and he tells a story. Instead of just frying him right on the spot, he just tells a story. And he says, okay, so we got this story, here it is, and this is, this is the story. He benefits it in position, uh, he positions it to benefit the lawyer. And so Jesus is asking the lawyer and therefore asking all of the hearers of this story at any time in any place, who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? As we go through the story, we're first introduced to two priests, a priest and a Levite. They're traveling away from Jerusalem and they're coming down the hill down to Jericho. And with the priest and the Levite story, you know, we heard that they both crossed to the other side and they, and they move on. And there's a lot of argumentation and commentaries about why. Why might priests who are supposed to be the religious leaders, why might they just pass on to the other side? And there's argumentation about the purification laws. You can't touch a dead body. There's argumentation about making sure that they could present in the temple. And really, I mean, one, they're leaving the temple, so probably not talking about purification for serving in the temple because they're done their duties. They're leaving. They're going back to Jericho. The other one about not touching a dead body, guys like, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> like you could seriously, <laughs> you can, you can, you can help somebody who is hurting. And so none of these laws really make us understand why the priests pass by. But Jesus has a very clear question. He's very much saying that he's like, are, are, you, are you the religious person that passes by those who are suffering? In this story, do you find yourself as the religious person who passes by those who are suffering? Ouch. Jesus, seriously? Ouch. Okay. Am I that person? Is that where I find myself in this story? Good thing the story goes on because there's another couple of people in the story. We have a, a Samaritan who is a random outsider. He is a stranger. And he comes and he binds up wounds and he invests his personal wealth and time. And we have a hostile worker who works in trust, 
who says, I will take care of this absolute stranger. I will help him get better. These outsiders are the heroes of the story. They're the unlikely heroes. They're the ones who do what needs to be done. They're the, they're the people who are getting it right. They're the people who, who, are, who are, you know, involved and being compassionate towards a random person suffering. Not a friend, a random person suffering. And the question Jesus is asking at this point in the story is, are you that good person? Are you that good person that's, that's taking oil and wine and binding up the hurts of people? He didn't say, are you the person that's eradicating all suffering in the world? He didn't say that. He simply said, are you a person who's helping where you see a need? He didn't say, are you joining a, a committee that's going to that's gonna end global hunger? He said, did you feed this person who's in need? And he asks us to find our place in the story. Who are you? Who are you in the story? And he's asking this religious lawyer in the moment, who are you in the story and how do you understand the law? The parsing out of, of Leviticus 19 isn't the most vital thing that needs to be done when we read the Bible. We don't need to track all the way back to say, oh, well, this means this. And there is benefit to it so that we get a good framework and understanding. But there's also a point where we just need to understand who are we in the story. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He gives us one final stroke, one final perspective. And he goes, there's another character in the story that we need to understand this from. There's one more perspective that we need to get to. For those of us who want to justify ourselves, who want to say, oh, yeah, well, I checked the box for I loved my neighbor because I was nice to my neighbor. For us who want to answer the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus forces us and the lawyer to identify as the person who is suffering. Who am I in the story? When I want to answer the question of who is my neighbor, I need to identify from the position of the person who is suffering. When I want to answer the question, who is my neighbor, I need to get into their shoes, into the people who are suffering. I need to see it from their perspective. He forces us into the shoes of the person who'd been, who has been robbed, and he says, who is your neighbor? See, we live in a world that beats us up at every corner, at every turn. There's a world that gets harsh out there and we know it's reality. We see it and we experience it and we, we try to manage it among our groups of friends. We try to deal with the, with the crap that shows itself in the world. And sometimes as a church, you know, we're like, oh, we're going to be so good and we're going we're to help out and fix it. And sometimes that can come across as pretty arrogant Sometimes it comes across as maybe not even helpful. And so one of the important questions that Jesus says, it says when you understand the law, when you understand how to love God and love your neighbor, when you really start to get it, you need to be able to start by sympathizing and being in the shoes of the person who's suffering. And if you've never suffered, 
You need to actually step back and start listening to the person who is suffering. We have to listen to the suffering. We have to be there. And Jesus himself, this is really interesting. God himself says, I want to listen to your suffering. I want to experience so much of your suffering that I come down as a person in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. And I experience it to the full, even to the point that they will put him to death. And he experiences the suffering. He finds himself in the position of the man who is suffering. And he experiences death. And when he rises up from death, he goes, I get you. I'm starting from the position of the suffering. So as we reach in to our text and we say, you know, who are we? We need to understand that the mercy that we want to show is understood best from the position of the suffering. Those are the ones who judge whether we love our neighbors or not. Did you love your neighbor? Did you fulfill what Jesus called the second greatest commandment? Do we love our neighbor? That's so important. There's a, there's a book that blew my mind when I was doing my studying. Uh, one, of my, one of my peers, I was, in, I, I was in what I thought was going to be a bird course. You know, just you take a course just because you got a heavy load, and so you're just going to take the easiest course you can find. And so I, there was a course called the, the Theology of Place. And I thought, how hard could that course be? Like, seriously, it's the easiest course in the world. Changed my entire perspective of ministry. Changed my perspective of who the church is and what the church does. And in this conversation, we were talking about the significance of the type of places we have as a church, as a religious institution, the type of places, what it communicates, and, and how we communicate. One of the people in my course said, Rob, you need to read this book, and it's called The Art of Neighboring. It's a simple read. This book is about a, a set of church pastors who got together in, in the western states. They got together in their ministerial. They raised a ton of money. Over $200,000, I think, uh, it might have been $170,000 American. So it was like a million dollars Canadian. <laughs> and they raised a ton of money, and they said, they said, um, they went to the town, and they said, hey, we want to make a difference in the town. Sound familiar? We want to serve in our town. Oh, yeah, that's great. We want to do something. And the, the mayor of the town took it to council, and the council had this massive discussion about how the church could invest their $170,000. And they came back, and they said, the council and, and the mayor came back to the ministerial, and they said, thank you for raising all this money for the town. What we really need in our suburban, affluent town is you guys to be good neighbors. Oh my gosh, the ministerial was so mad. <laughs> this is in the book. The ministerial was so mad. What do you, we just raised $170,000 American. <laughs> and you don't want it? You just want us to be, what are you talking? And then some young pastor, I imagine the person to be young, they didn't clarify. Some person's like, isn't that the second greatest commandment? Oh, shoot. And they were like, how do we love our neighbors? One of the first things they realized when they started studying it is in our, in our affluent world, we've, we've started to make the idea of neighbor abstract. 
oh, we love our neighbors in in Asia when something bad happens and we send money to Red Cross. That's us loving loving our neighbors. Or we love our neighbors when we send missionaries to places far off. Great. Lovely. Well, these guys make it really, really practical. The picture says a thousand words. Here's your house in the dead center. For most of us who live in suburbia, you have eight houses that surround you. What are their names? Ouch. I'm just like, oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know. What are their names? Where do they work? What's their family life like? And then finally, what are their hopes and dreams? Want to love your neighbors? You have real neighbors right next door. I was like, shoot. Oh, shoot. I started getting to know my neighbors. I'm like, they're like real people. I actually like them. Well, except for that one. They moved. Um, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I was like, wow, powerful. So my suggestion, Jay and Pathak, Dave, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon, The Art of Neighboring. Pick this simple read up. Get it an ebook, get an audiobook, pick it up, read it. Who are we in the story? We know that we love our neighbors when we see them through the eyes of the suffering. God's calling us to love our neighbors. Let me check. I think I've got some text messages that have come in. And I get that the greatest commandment is the answer to everything, but when we try to give an answer to non-Christians, does that come out across as a non-answer? See, the whole idea of living life under a commandment comes out in our culture as a non-answer. Because to live under a commandment means that somebody else is ruling my life and not myself. It means I've given up control of some aspect of who I am. And to our context in in a non-Christian world, they're like, why would you do that? Why are you living under somebody else's commandments? Do your own thing. Make your own way. And so when we say, no, my life has integrity, I first love God, and next I love my neighbor, they better be able to see at least one of those, but preferably two. You want to have integrity? You want to be, you know, seen as somebody that makes a difference in the church of Christ? It's love God and let that be visible, and love your neighbor and let that be more visible. (laughs) Seriously. All right, next question. The true test is, do I love the unlovable? That is the person in our eyes, evil or a lost cause. Uh, that is the person that is in our eyes, evil or a lost cause. Yeah, if my neighbor is unlovable, but even if my neighbor is lovable, it, they're still my neighbor. Like, one of the things that, that we could do well to do is make this very concrete. Make this very, very concrete. Yes, the person that's suffering. Yes, the unlovable. Yes, the, the, the person who is just evil or a lost cause. And yes, my neighbor that lives right beside me. Those are all true. All right, I think I have a 
something else good okay we are all neighbors we are all sinners none of us is greater than another everyone is our neighbor god made us and we are all family and yes while that's true again this starts moving us into the abstract you know um i think the uh, the incredibles one got it right if everybody is super then nobody is super you know, um, we kind of lose kind of what does that mean? We It gets lost in the, oh, well, you know, I love everybody. And all of a sudden you go, I can't love everybody because like, seriously, I don't know everybody. I just don't know everybody. There's 8 billion, almost 8 billion people on the planet. Yes, they are all family, but how do I love them? Let me pray as Devin comes up and we're going to close in a song. God, this is an impressive use of story. This is an impressive challenge. And this is hard. We know that as a church, we exist to foreshadow the fulfillment of your promises. You know, we come here on a Sunday, God, and we, we worship you and we love you and we give you everything from everything we have. We give you glory and praise and honor and we do our best to be quote-unquote good people and we do all of that stuff but then but then you say like love my neighbor and god sometimes that feels like work i've heard stories of people's neighbors i know there are people who hear this and hear it as a concrete and that hits really close to home on a lot of levels And so, Jesus, I pray that you would give us your spirit, your boldness, your strength. This isn't something that, you know, I can muster up. It's only something that you do. And this is eternal life. This is what it is to be life-bearing, life-giving. To love God with everything we are. And from that, you give us strength to love our neighbors even as we love ourselves. We thank you, Jesus, for your wisdom. Help us always understand our love from the suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.